Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. There are some people who claim that their taste in film was fully formed by young adulthood, and others who can't admit that their cinematic palettes should have kept developing beyond that age. Nevertheless, the films that we respond to as a child can signal future obsessions or simply show how we once understood the world and ourselves in it. In this episode, I was joined by Cameron Collins from The Ringer, Mark Harris from Vulture, and Nicholas Elliott, New York correspondent for KG Cinema, to explore the films that we liked in that innocent, prepubescent period. Here's the conversation. Thank you all for coming. And today we're actually, we're going to be talking about something that we're going to go back. We're going to go back in time, dredge our personal histories, uh, partly inspired by one of Mark's very wonderful Cinema 67 revisited columns. We're going to be talking about films that uh, I really liked it when I was a kid. I really loved it when I was 10. Films that have not necessarily stood the test of time. Maybe they have films that maybe they did ignite our passion for cinema. Maybe they were just things that we liked when we didn't have very strong feelings at all about cinema. So Cameron, why don't you start us off and talk about one of your picks? Okay. Well, I was an only child and was often unsupervised in terms of like the TV. So a lot of my favorite childhood movies are actually not appropriate for children, Mm. um, including Jane Campion's The Piano. Which I saw, I think I was I think I was in middle school or younger, playing hooky from school, pretending to be sick, watching HBO. <laughs> had no business doing this. Um, and then this movie came on, and I had never heard of it. Um, but I recognized Holly Hunter. I don't I don't know what I would have seen her in. And I was immediately it was just it was one of the formative for me, just I can't turn this movie off. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious about what I'm seeing in this film. I'm so curious about Holly Hunter's performance. I, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a musician. Um, so it spoke to me on that level as well. And the romance of it uh, was very new for me. I, I just never, you know, the pairing of Holly Hunter and Harvey Keitel and the guy from Jurassic Park, Sam Neill. <laughs> it was just, it was a lot. Uh, it was a lot. Definitely, I think I, I think I was like verging on puberty, so I think there was also the piano is just a very erotic movie, and I just I was not prepared, yeah, at all. And the in the <laughs> I think I think importantly the eroticism in that movie, as in many Jane Campion movies, is for this very like stocky, brutish type of guy, as right. opposed to like maybe a soft, totally together guy. So it's <laughs> I think that's also maybe why it appeals to certain women and a large segment of gay men. Absolutely. No, I mean, and and frankly, just in terms of the romantic movies that I think I'd seen by that point, Harvey Keitel was never the kind of romantic lead no. um, that I think I'd encountered before. And I think also there's a, something especially brutish about him in that film. She really, she really plays into that with that character. And I just, you know, I just, the exoticism of it even, um, the Michael Nyman music, I just mm-hmm. had never, you know, for me, it's like one of the big, I think for people around my age, it's usually like Pulp Fiction or something is your big auteur movie. But I think for me, it was the piano. I think I saw that before I saw Pulp Fiction. It was the first time I was like, wow, there's things going on in this movie that feel very, the style feels very uh, deliberate. I'm, th- I'm thinking a lot about choices. I'm thinking about the shot of like someone, someone I'm stirring their coffee even stands out. Um, I just never really thought about the movie for it in that, in that way. 
Yeah. It's hard to sort of draw a straight line between any of her films, but she does have this very deliberate, unique style that does. So it is something like Pulp Fiction. Like if you grow up and you only kind of see very straightforward three act narratives, Jurassic Park, for example, and then right. this thing comes along that sort of jumbles that up and you're like, oh, wow, what's this? And the piano sort of does that, too. But with regards to like something more universal, which is romance and sexuality. So, right. yeah, I don't. What did you make of Anna Paquin's character? As a little kid, <laughs> or as a younger Iconic. man, <laughs> still. Uh, uh, no, I man, I hated that character. <laughs> I really, uh, the, I think Anna Paquin. She was in something else that I saw as a kid. I think uh, this movie about bird, uh, like winged migration or something. She was in a movie about a flock of geese or something that she fell in love with. Okay, I, I, I swear I'm not making this up. This I, is like a Hallmark Channel. Yeah, it's like, it's like that kind thing. of okay. film. So I, I recognized her. Hmm. But the evil of that character was again like sort of like the Harvey Keitel sex like sexiness. Uh the evil of of the child was not something that I'd really encountered. I hadn't gotten around to horror movies that that were about evil children. Um so I didn't know that evil children <laughs> uh and, and kids' movies, I don't really think of children as evil, just sort of bad. Um but yeah, I yeah, she she was iconic, yeah. And I totally. guess, how do you feel revisiting it now? Thank God it's still a movie that I <laughs> love. Uh, I love it more. I love it more every time I see it. Um, I still am mad that Bill Clinton shaded it, you know, that he didn't see what the big deal was. I remember reading that when I was a kid and just being pissed. Yeah. Being very defensive about this movie very quickly. Absolutely. That leaves it. He just gave Leaves of Grass as a thing. He didn't actually read it. <laughs> that was his just opener, and he didn't actually mean anything about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Damn. Do you guys have any piano memories? Well, I was like 90 when the piano came out. I'm like, um, but uh, so it's not a childhood memory, but I do remember uh, the writer Paul Rudnick pointing out that um, that year, the year that the movie came out, male gay couples of mismatched size were in the Halloween parade as Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin <laughs> were only one would talk, which is like remains to me one of the genius New York City Halloween costumes of all time. Great piano memory. You know, that's perfect. And and I you know and of course I remember the piano on the beach. I mean, like one visual memory like that can be so arresting that it can lodge the whole movie in your mind forever. I saw it when I was I think in my late teens when it came out and. It didn't make a tremendous impression, but I was wondering when I was listening to Cameron, what would have happened if he had also seen Bad Lieutenant at that tender age? Yes. Because that's another <laughs> nude, brutish, hunk of meat, Harvey Keitel performance. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, I didn't see Bad Lieutenant until, until I was a grown man, and I, I think that even then I was not ready. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done seeing it as a kid, actually. I, you know, I don't even think I knew really. I mean, I must have known who Harvey Keitel was. He was in so many things um, in the 90s. But uh, I, I, I think that it actually might have had the opposite effect because he's so, you know, he takes advantage of people in a way. I mean, he takes advantage of, of Holly Hunter in the piano as well, um, transactionally. But as a cop, I think I would have reacted a little differently. And he's screaming a lot. It's just not yeah. as sexy. He's messier. It's not sexy at all, but I think what I remember from Bad Lieutenant is his vulnerability, both as an actor mm -hmm. and as a character in the nude scene where he's like, it's nearly like a trance-like nude scene. So that 
the films came out very close together, I think, right. Bad Lieutenant and The Piano. So that overrides my memory, actually, of what he's like in The Piano because that one image of Harvey Keitel and The Bad Lieutenant is so far out as far as I'm concerned. It's even the cover of some of the DVDs for it, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's very striking. Yeah. What about, um, while we're on the topic of this type of man, what about Bob Hoskins? Was he also sort of like a formative? Because they just kind of don't make him like that anymore, right? What was the he, what was the film that he was in that I watched a million times? Well, there's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And then, then there's yeah. also Mona Lisa. There's like a bunch of... He was like kind of a leading man for a while. I absolutely had a crush on him okay. in Who Framed yeah. Roger Rabbit. I swear that my I have a very diverse taste. Yes. Um, to, just to clarify, but <laughs> this is not the sexual pathology <laughs> podcast. I just wanted to ask. How did it become that already? No, that's really like we, this is like the history of bears. <laughs> Dan Connor risen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, absolutely. I absolutely had like an infat. Although when I saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I was too young to understand the kind of infatuation that it was, and also mm -hmm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was such a good, you know, an entertaining movie for me as a kid. Anyway, that I watched it a million times, but I did start to recognize something about Bob Hoskins. Yeah, yeah, I did. I feel like we're one step away from asking you how you like Phil Collins and Buster. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth there. I can't tell everyone everything. I know, I know. There has to, We have to have some discretion. Um, <clears throat> Mark, do you want to talk about yours? Your first my, my bears or movies? Your movie. um, <laughs> I, well, you know, it's it's funny. I was thinking about your question and also um, while Cameron was talking about the, the distinction between like the first movies where you start to feel your critical faculties exist and then the movies before that where i mean like cameron my first uh movie experiences were on tv mm -hmm. um and and they were pre-critical they were at that age where like everything you see in a movie is new and and you default to it's true not it's really happening but like every piece of information you were getting about the adult world from this movie is is real and potentially useful so so the movies I grew up with were like horror movies on this thing that used to air on local television on Saturday afternoons called Creature Features. Mm -hmm. And also New York City, where I grew up, used to have this uh, thing on Channel 7 called the 430 Movie, which was this five-day-a-week thing in which movies were brutalized in an almost incomprehensible way. They were cut for content they were divided into two parts that ran on consecutive days because it was a 90 minute slot with commercials to fill that out sometimes the recap of the previous days you know what happened in part one was like 20 minutes long you know just depending on how long the slot was and you know none of that mattered because to me I wasn't worried about delivery systems. This was like seeing new stuff. So the movies I remember from that are uh, The Blob on Creature Features, the 1958 version of The Blob, which absolutely terrified me on some kind of primal body horror level. The, the, the notion that you could touch this little ball of slime and that it could then crawl up the stick onto your arm and get you, mm -hmm. and then it could get other people just was like, so real to me you know it was like watching the when i was a little kid i watched the adam west batman series yes. and i did not you know register the notion of camp it was all 
it was something I took at seven very, very seriously. And the blob was like that. And now it's a criterion movie. So I suppose it means I had immaculate taste, but, <laughs> but really it was also the blob. And then, um, the, from the four thirty movie, the, the thing I most remember is that they would have this week. I may have talked about this before, but they have this week where, uh, Monday and Tuesday was whatever happened to baby Jane. Wednesday was a standalone, very, very bad uh, movie with Tallulah Bankhead and Stephanie Powers called Die, Die, My Darling. And Thursday and Friday was Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And the last two were really not my thing. But Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which I watched after school two days in a row, went into me in this profoundly deep way that everything was terrifying about it. Not just what happened, but the meanness of Betty Davis's character, the grim way they lived, the makeup, the darkness of that house. It was the first movie I ever saw that deeply scared me. And I still love it. And it was also the first experience I had of watching a movie and, and thinking it can't possibly turn out the way I think it's going to turn out. Like surely the good guys will win and this, mm-hmm. something good will happen. So you know, it's it's strange in retrospect that I picked the movies that I can think of when I was, uh, are, are, was a very little kid are either movies that scared me, like The Blob and Baby Jane, or movies that made me really sad, which were usually animal movies like Born Free or yeah. Ring of Bright Water, which is a movie about oh otters God. that, you know. I love that movie. I It was on TCM one day, and I was supposed to be packing up my apartment and moving, and it came on. I was like, I'll just watch five minutes. And then, like, two hours later, I'm just, like, streaming, crying tears. It's so emotional. Right. So oh, moving from binge. bears to otters, I was <laughs> destroyed by Ring of Bright Water. And, yes. and then there's a whole separate set of movies that, like, I saw in theaters at this age of 11 or 12 where I was, like, beginning to like those were the first movies where I started thinking about, oh, this is what a good performance means. This is this is like an interesting way of telling a story. Like I started understanding movies as things that were made, mm-hmm. not just as delivery systems for information about the terrifying adult world. But but that's kind of a different category. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I guess at what point in your life did you sort of like you're like, oh, this is camp. This is not a scary thing. I think camp came later than 11 or 12. I mean, when I was 11 or 12, the movies I was seeing in theaters, like my first, I want to go to that movies were, Mm -hmm. this was around like 1975, 76. So it was like network, one floor of the cuckoo's nest, jaws, Mm -hmm. Carrie. Those were the first movies I started understanding as like, this is a really good movie. And here's why I at 11 think it is a really good movie. But but my earliest, deepest movie memories, probably the movies that made me want to go to movies in the first place, were those cheesy old films on the 430 movie. Mm, interesting. Nicholas, what about you? Well, this was um, a challenging assignment to think about because I didn't really get into movies in a serious or passionate way until I was really in my late teens. Um, and there was a long phase before that where I just didn't go to the movies at all and didn't watch them on TV either. But I did, I grew up in France and I remember that there were two commercial movies, French from the early 80s that I really liked a lot. One is called La Chèvre and it's directed by Francis Weber. It stars Gérard Depardieu and the comic actor Pierre Richard. And another one is called Las Desas and it's directed by Gérard Houry. And it's... Um, Maybe do Le Chevre first, because we got to split okay, it up. Okay, well, I, they kind of go together. I'm okay. not necessarily... Well, here's the other thing, is mm-hmm. Les Desas, I don't actually remember it very well. Mm-hmm. The point that I wanted to make about these two films that I remember is that 
I don't remember the first time I saw them, but I remember in this early youthful stage sharing them with someone else, by which I mean, I saw La Chèvre presumably with my mom, who's French speaking in France. And then that summer we came to New York with my dad, who doesn't speak French, and we saw that it was playing at the Lincoln Plaza um, uh. with subtitles. And so I have a my first memory of the Lincoln Plaza and my only memory of seeing that movie in a movie theater is taking my dad to see that movie there. And then Las Desas, again, I presumably saw it in the movie theater with my mom. And sometime later, some young French girls who are friends of my family came to visit. And we had a, a VHS of the film at this point, And it's a film that deals with the Nazi era. Mm. And I remember very clearly explaining to these two girls who were like 10 and 8 what the Holocaust was, what like explaining this whole thing. So just in thinking about this assignment that you gave us for this podcast, it was curious to me that my two kind of big early movie memories mm. are about sharing a movie with someone else, given that I've since become a film critic or someone who likes to tell other people, hey, this is really great, check it out. La Chèvre of the Two is the one that I would still stand by as mm -hmm. a good movie. It's maybe the only movie that I go for as my guilty pleasure when asked what a guilty pleasure. It's a buddy movie. Um, the, the premise is genius in my idea. Um, a very wealthy Frenchman's daughter has disappeared in South America. I forget what country or if that's even identified. Um, and this girl is insanely unlucky. Like mm -hmm. anything she does turns into a disaster. And this wealthy French guy has sent all these different detectives looking for her, et cetera, et cetera. No one can find her. So then he, he finds out that in his company that he runs, there's this guy, Pierre Richard, who is insanely unlucky. So he matches this guy up with a tough private eye played by Gérard Depardieu, and the two of them take off on the search for this young woman. And what happens, of course, is that initially Gérard Depardieu is horrified by Pierre Richard because he's such an idiot, he's such a pain, um, and Pierre Richard thinks that he's a stud and that he's going to find this woman. And, and little by little, the luck kind of infectiously carries over to Gérard Depardieu, and he gets unlucky, and, and Pierre Richard kind of proves to have some acumen in tracking down the girl. So it's a really interesting, you know, for, for a young kid, presumably, there's a lot of interesting values there in terms of friendship and um, so on. And, and I, I will always remember Gérard Depardieu, who, when he wants to not check his cell phone while he's shooting a scene, can be a very <laughs> great actor. Yes. The look on his face at times when he looks at Pierre Richard, when he's thinking, for instance, they're in a jail cell at one point, and this is when his, the luck turns, when it switches. They're in a cell and in this, you know, third world country, I'm doing quotation marks um, with my fingers, um, and this brutish guard comes in, and it's clear that he's going to take one of the guys and go work him over in some other room. And so Gérard Depardieu looks at Pierre Richard with this look just full of love and pity, and you poor guy, and then the guard points at him, Gérard Depardieu, <laughs> and he's like, what, me? No. Uh, and then he gets carried off. So it's it's a lot of fun to this day.
Depardieu really was a powerhouse actor. And so to like to be attract, I mean, also very handsome back in this period that you're describing, but to be sort of like glom onto him, it's like, even though he was kind of slumming it, maybe it is like an invitation to know what a good performance is, what a um, charismatic actor can bring to a, a to a role. Definitely. Yeah. And, and you have I mean, you have two other two kinds of performances in the film. You have right. what you just described with Depardieu and then Pierre Richard, who, who never really got well known in, in the U.S., but was in France in the 70s, their leading comic actor and just mm. a, a huge, huge star. And throughout the 80s as well is a, you know, a very precise time type of comedic timing, some physical comedy, but especially a beautiful way of playing self-delusion. A guy who's just basically an absolute loser, totally out of it, who's convinced that he's virile, tough, incredibly intelligent, and his way of putting that up against people is just, well, it's side-splitting. It's just sheer pleasure. I think that was a movie that Hollywood tried to remake or developed for remake like in that era after La Cage Fall when when Hollywood was really scouting French comedies uh that could be Americanized I think La Chevre was was one that they really looked at well the one thing that I did to research this podcast was I did look that up and actually there's a remake of it called Tough Luck starring Martin Short and Danny Glover directed by an Australian female director whose name is escaping me. There is a a remake, which presumably made no money, and that's why we've not heard of it. But the interesting thing is that this director, Francis Weber, who's also a screenwriter, he continued this formula well into the 2000s, the buddy movie with one guy who's an idiot and one guy who's like a success, and it Mm. switches. And at one point, the successful guy is like, oh, the other guy's actually really smart in his way. All his films were remade. He's like the one guy. At, mm. None of them were successful, but there's The Fugitives, with, which I think was remade with Nick Nolte and someone else. And his films, film by film, get more and more offensive. He becomes, like he, his last really big success was Le Dîner de Con, which is I think the, the dinner of schmucks or something like right. that. Right. Yes. And that film is very deeply offensive in its treatment of a person who, you know, arguably is mentally handicapped or, or limited in a way. He has so little generosity. He lacks the generosity that the character he wrote for Depardieu has in La Chèvre. Mm. And so he becomes, in my eyes, a reprehensible filmmaker. But at the time of La Chèvre, he's still able to play with this back and forth with, with generosity. And I think he must have an even more reprehensible film, which I haven't seen, called The Closet, which is about a workplace environment, this buddy scenario, but with one guy who's in the closet. Huh. And I would hate to see what he did with that. <laughs> so I won't. It is interesting because like France does has this certain reputation, you know, because of things like the new wave. And like there are a lot of genuinely excellent French films that are exported. And then there are ones that just kind of like stay in France that are totally sexist, homophobic, racist in ways that you would not think could exist now. But they still do. And they make quite a lot of money. Well, there's a vast gulf between French auteurist cinema and French commercial comedy, which... That we exists. never see it. They're never distributed here. And I myself, you know, French speaking, writing for a French magazine, spending a lot of time in France. I try to avoid seeing them. Yeah. But I mean, I think that golf exists in every cinema. But Well, I think it's I mean, you're raising a really interesting question that does connect to sort of the first movies of childhood issue, which is yeah. what and I think it's something that we all still wrestle with as adults, which is 
what happens when your politics don't match your taste? Exactly. Like it's it's a nice thing when they conform perfectly, but what happens when you see a movie that you know is you know quote unquote problematic that you can feel yourself still absolutely responding to no matter how much you deny it i mean there's and i think the childhood thing is really interesting in that regard but because of course as a kid you're kind of pre-political you respond to what you respond to and then to to go back and think like well was it okay for me to like this movie or was it does it now seem uh misogynistic or or homophobic or or racist i mean like i always remember um in the movie the celluloid closet there's a, a great montage of like really effete, effeminate, sissy caricatures from, like, early in movie history. And then they cut to Harvey Firestein being interviewed, and he sort of shrugs and says, I like the sissy. Like, it, you know, he's someone who absolutely grew up having to deal with homophobia, and this certainly made his contribution to ending it. But he responded to this particular caricature, which for him was... Uh, liberating in some ways, or mm-hmm. or or at least a relief from horror, you yeah. know. So it's, I mean, it's a tricky thing. Maybe that's why I picked animal movies and a movie about a blob. <laughs> it's very safe. Well, I well, I almost picked Rush Hour for this because that was a film that I I, I remember watching that and really enjoying that. And I watched it recently, and I was like, okay, it has like the Oriental riff at every moment in the soundtrack. But this is it's still a legitimately enjoyable movie. It's kind of a slow down Jackie Chan movie, like Jackie Chan at a quarter speed. Because if you watch his Hong Kong movies, he's, there's so much stuff going on. And then Chris Tucker sort of fills it out. Problematically? Probably. But um, I wanted to talk about something that was a little earlier. Because uh, that was sort of at the cusp of um, teenhood, probably when I was like 13. I wanted to first talk about Wayne's World. Because... My family didn't like to go to the movies. Uh, it's too much of a hassle uh, slash too expensive. You don't you don't really know what you're going to get. But Wayne's World was something that my mother owned on VHS. And I remember really enjoying it. But I also remember the horror of being in like fourth grade, maybe like two or three years after the movie came out and trying to quote it to people. And people were like, that's not funny. Like it was already <laughs> it was already not funny at that moment. And it's like so, and, and in my mind, I want to think that it's still funny but it's definitely not i went back and checked so the premise of course is that before snl was leading the resistance they were making terrible movies and one the second of these movies which ended up making a ton of money was wayne's world directed by penelope spheris who did the decline and fall of western civilization the iconic trilogy of punk and heavy metal documentaries in los angeles but this of course, Mike Myers, who just seems like a terrible person the more you read about him. But he, you know, he created this character who lives in Aurora, Illinois, has a local cable access show with his best friend, Garth, played by Dana Carvey. And, you know, it, it has this, the premise is just fundamentally unbelievable, where this guy who owns this ar- these arcades, this chain of arcades in Chicago wants to, like, buy the rights. He liked to, like, basically sponsored content, right? He wants to sponsor their show and have all this creative control. And at first, you know, Wayne and Garth are fine with it. Um, but really, what is the movie about? It's just sort of like Mike Myers turning to the camera and winking, making like bad double entendre, dick jokes, saying schwing, talking about how hot women are. There are parts of it that are like, 
low grade problematic where it's like, okay, like fine. Just tell another joke about how you're aroused. It's fine. I don't care. But there's just something kind of not there. And um, I don't know. I think the Sandler movies definitely still hold up if we're going to talk about SNL. Like, but you know, Adam Sandler had Robert Smigel. And I think that's sort of the key difference, <laughs> the key difference to making them span time or at least longer than two years. Has Penelope Spears spoken about Wayne's world in terms of, I would love to know yes. what she thinks of it now. Well, she, so the story with her is that, you know, Mike Myers was sort of very controlling of the vision of the film. And, you know, he prevented her from being, from directing the second one. And the funny story about the second one being that Mike Myers, you know, with his anglophilia made this, the second one was going to be this homage to Passport to Pimlico and they didn't get the rights. And so he had to like rewrite the whole movie in two weeks, which is why it's not watch why the second one is just like, whoa, what the hell is this? It's not very good. So in the past, she's been more forthcoming about their disagreements. And now she's sort of like, I'm happy with it. It's fine. Because it really because she was 45 years old, a woman at the time she directed it. And it really opened up a lot of possibilities for her. So blessing and a curse. It's it's all mixed messages. (laughs) What about your second film Cameron well originally it was going to be Batman Returns but thinking about it we're just going to get to the same like the same sex stuff as before <laughs> frankly because it, I just really it's all about like Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman was extremely I think the, that's the first movie I saw in theaters mm. and I think that movie it's a Tim Burton Batman movie and Michelle Pfeiffer has a whip and it's kinky it's like it's like not even hiding that but as a kid you don't know that right. um, but we don't have to go down that road I actually you know a movie that I've been thinking about a lot this week because I've been thinking about Leslie Manville this week because mm. um, I was writing on her uh, is Secrets and Lies which she doesn't have a huge part in mm. but it's an extremely memorable part uh, Mike Lee's film uh, and I, I believe this is in the category of movies that my mom said was a good movie. And so is what, what I, whatever happened to Baby Jane, actually. I have a, a number of films that I just have very warm memories of because my mom liked them. We watched them together. Um, and Secrets and Lies is one of them. I was pretty young when, when it came out, but particularly when I saw it. So, you know, I guess embarrassingly, but not like this was the first time that I'd ever it ever occurred to me that there were there, there were black British people. It was not on my radar at all. It just, yeah, it just, it just, it just wasn't. Uh, I feel like that's true of most Americans, which yeah. is crazy. <laughs> yes, it, it is which true. Which is like, it's just like, do you not understand the history of the world? Right. Like, <laughs> like, like, like this is not, not a thing that should persist. And so I'm glad that Mike Lee schooled me early. But the, but the, I mean, that movie, you know, it stands out for a number of reasons, partially because I, I was always into family dysfunction. I come from a sort of, rowdy family this is the reason i never liked the cosby show growing up i always liked roseanne mm-hmm. partially because i related more to roseanne's the the poverty there but also mm-hmm. just the dysfunction there i related to and brenda blethen in secrets and lies still one of my favorite performances i would go around the house quoting things that she says in that movie like i wouldn't know him if he stood up in me soup like anytime my mom would ask me about someone, I'd be like, I wouldn't know them if they stood up in me soup. And she'd be like, What are you? Why are you why are you, why are you speaking like a six-year-old like woman? Um uh that film I, also just like the interraciality of it, just it it blew my mind. I, I just never I just never seen anything like what is a fairly straightforward adoption story. Mm-hmm. Although even in the movie, you know, it's a surprise to everyone that Blenda Blethen has a, a black daughter. Like it, it is like a, a thing that's played for 
or shock and humor. But I was certainly, as a kid, just blown away by it. Um, it's just a, 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 one of the series of movies about race in some way that I saw as a kid that really just sort of really threw me just from my very, like, limited, you know, like, black American kid in New Jersey suburbs experience, which you wouldn't think is limited, or I didn't think it was limited. And then comes a movie like this. <laughs> uh, and Brenda Blethyn being a mess and, and just totally blew me away. Two Palm Door winners. I don't know what I was doing as a kid. <laughs> I'm not that refined. <laughs> You're balancing it out with Roseanne, I guess. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about your, like you mentioned, your your parents showing you, like the idea of your your mom or your dad wanting to show you a movie that they loved. That's an interesting kind of experience. It can be like a bonding experience when you agree, and it can also be the first development of your critical taste as yes. a very little kid when you don't like. I, I remember really specifically my father taking me to Jaws and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and and sort of saying like you will love these and I loved them and it 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 was sort of one of the times I felt closest to my father but I also remember him absolutely insistently taking me and my younger brother to Animal Crackers the Marx Brothers movie mm. which is a movie that he had loved when he was a kid and I remember you know at like seven and six my brother and i looking at each other thinking like what the fuck like this is not uh, like i did not respond to the marx brothers and and to show you like how much childhood taste can calcify quickly i still don't respond to the marx brothers like i will always resent being taken to animal crackers i'll never get it i i don't know i don't know it's just like Hmm. um some 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 little thing i guess about like I was a very orderly child, so probably mm. their complete sense of anarchy and chaos freaked me out, and and I put up a wall against it that I've never quite been able to, you know, dismantle. But mm. but uh, but it's a very strange and and formative in its own way experience as a little kid to think like, okay, this person who I trust and who takes care of me likes this, but I don't. Yes, like it's it's the first time you you have to begin to examine because if you like something you don't really often as a little kid go the extra step of saying okay but why do i like it but if you don't like something that you are told you're supposed to like you might start taking that second step and thinking well why don't i like it what's is it me or is it it? See, I usually just, I would just go to, it's something is wrong with me. <laughs> that sounds healthy. Yeah, that's, that might still be my default. But um, what, what is a, what's another one for you, Mark? Another childhood memory movie? Yes. Well, this is sort of a negative one, but it, it kind of connects to what we were talking about. When I was 10, my parents took me to The Conversation, the mm-hmm. Coppola Gene Hackman movie at a drive-in. And, and I hated it like i i didn't get it at all i felt like i couldn't hear it i didn't understand what the fuss was about i was already interested in the academy awards so it was nominated i thought what you know how could they nominate that and like you know it's not nearly as good as the towering inferno um (laughs) but then i remember it being on like the early version of HBO a couple of years later when I was 12 or 13 and I saw it and I loved it and got it. And it was, I mean, partly it was the difference between being 10 and 13, but that experience of understanding that you could, 
revisit a movie at a time when you knew more and understood more and felt more and that the movie could transform for you, but it was actually you that transformed. Um, the movie was there all along. That, as I got older and started writing about movies, became um, really meaningful for me. I mean, I try always to keep open the possibility that I could uh, change my mind about a movie. And, and I think the conversation was the first movie I remember changing my mind about and, and realizing that, you know, sometimes you have to grow into a movie. It's not just the movie. It's it's you. No, that's that's a really important experience. And I still don't think everyone has learned that lesson, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> a little side note while we're talking about unhealthy uh, things. But um, Nicholas, what is your second film? Well, while I was just listening to Mark, I suddenly remembered in a flash that my other favorite film when I was a child was National Lampoon's Vacation. Yes. Um, <laughs> and what I'm remembering of that film strikes me as problematic. So ah, yeah. <laughs> I'm remembering Beverly D'Angelo's head getting caught under the steering wheel. I'm remembering the really absurd scene with, is it Christy Brinkley? Who's the model in it? Yes. Getting into the pool, like... I'm not feeling terribly proud of my childhood picks. Um, <laughs> this was pure VHS. Um, I have a much older sister and she and her husband, I literally think they had one VHS and I spent a lot of time at their house and I spent a lot of time watching Vacation. But um, yeah, I, I literally just remembered this film. I have not been thinking about it. Was it in the US or France? That this, Yeah, this is in the US. Oh, okay, so it wasn't like a funny dub of Chevy Chase. Kissing the sandwiches. No, for, for funny dubs, we'd have to get into Starsky and Hutch and Magnum P.I. in French. And I could even sing you the Starsky and Hutch song in French, but I won't. You know, I don't think any shame should attach to any of this. Exactly. Like, I wrote an entire book that was partly predicated on the fact that I really loved Dr. Doolittle when I was a kid. And I spent, like, three years of research paying for that. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's... You have to let yourself off the hook. Your kids aren't supposed to have good taste, and and that's one of the things that makes it incredibly wonderful to talk to children about movies, that what you're getting is their unprocessed reactions, not, you know, their manicured ones. Right, and it's not that kids can't be smart or that, you know, like can't latch on to, like, really emotionally complex things like Cameron here, who is some sort of emotional... Giants, <laughs> um, but like uh, it's it's just like you when you're a kid again you're sort of processing you're learning to process the world and you, which means that sometimes you process things in different ways and sometimes it's just this small detail that becomes enlarged in your mind and that's not even the point but it's yeah it is it is sort of enlightening to be like okay kid because kids are also really savvy because kids know what's next Hot I tip. really want to know Cameron's next pick though I'm waiting for you to say like and also there was this Pasolini movie that when I was three <laughs> <laughs> it was really weird <laughs> the, I, yeah it's it's no one ever told me to watch kid movies um I did not see like Snow White as a kid I I did see the Disney films that came out like contemporary with me going to the movies but mm -hmm. Yeah, only children, you know, they're just like, go play with your Legos, turn on the TV, entertain yourself. That's great. And just, there's no there's no filter. I just don't have a distinction really in my mind between like the Jurassic Parks and the Secrets and Lies. Those things were the same thing to me. Mm -hmm. um, Jurassic Parks may be a bad example because Spielberg is still doing something a cut above. But like 
uh, just a lot of trash was not trash to me and a lot of what was prestige was not prestige. It was just all the same and I appreciate that now actually. I want to point out one generational difference because I was born in 63 and so you guys had probably different versions of an experience that I didn't have, which is that growing up, I had no repeat viewing whatsoever of movies mm. as a kid. There was no VCR um Cable TV, where you could see a movie more than once, didn't even kick in until I was about 13. So my memories of the movies I saw as a child and the way I retain them are not predicated on repeat viewings. They were sort of first grabs, and there was always the idea that you might never have an opportunity to see it again, which I think definitely affected the way I related to and and viewed the movies that I talked about. Wow. I like that is... Uh, intense to think about because I'm I'm just remembering, for example, when uh, the VHS for Titanic dropped, <laughs> uh. <laughs> and and I like my I like woke my mom up. She's like non-committally was like, oh fine, I'll say that I'll do this for you if you like shut up and stop asking. At midnight when Blockbuster started to sell it. I don't remember why it was like such a big deal. Well, I mean, it was Titanic. It was a huge movie. It was, yeah, and Titanic was like, no, at midnight we're gonna start selling these these double VHSs of, mm-hmm. of Titanic. Uh, and that was huge for me. Titanic was a movie that I I wore out those VHSs. Like it, I I've seen that movie so many times. Uh, and mm-hmm. and most of the films, even even music videos, really like I had music video tapes of every Michael Jackson thing, every Janet Jackson thing. Rewatching was always a, an obsessive, obsessive part of my childhood. Yeah, mm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit as well. Bob Hoskins was a huge part of my childhood, <laughs> frankly. I rewatched everything. Mm-hmm. I'm like Nicholas where I'm not. I, I, it took me a while, probably until, again, I was like later teens where I got into movies proper in a way that I felt compelled to like see things and really like understand like oh I would hear okay what's this movie The Shining oh I should probably watch that and have an understanding of that and want to deal with it and I watched a lot of TV I watched a lot of like late night public uh, television reruns of like British shows and I thought that was real highfalutin uh, even though it wasn't, but it, it was like very coming back to the question of like sort of teaching you how to exist in the world and develop a sense of taste and things that make you different from other people, which is why I will talk next about Flashdance, which is a movie <laughs> I never bought, but I did rent it from the video store several times. And I remember biking to the video store, maybe four blocks away and renting it in the dance section of the store. And I was afraid rewatching it that I wouldn't like it. And I still very much do because ultimately she's not like the other girls and it's hard for her because she's, you know, she's masculine, she's a welder, but then she's also a dancer, a stripper, and then she also wants to be a ballerina. So it's like she's being pulled in three different directions and everyone in this movie I mean, I guess this was novel in the early 80s that the idea that someone would need to work two jobs, (laughs) like if you wanted to be an artist, like that was a novel thing Uh, because, you know, like the fry cook wants to be a comedian. Her friend who also works at the strip club, she wants to be an ice skater. And of course, Gloria from this movie, the music was a huge part of this movie. Gloria, which was used most recently in I, Tanya and American Crime Story, Johnny Versace, for great effect, um, it sort of captured this. I mean, all the music is produced by Giorgio Moroder and like this sort of like thumping, you know, steel town driven. Like it's just so propulsive. And knowing that so many of the like 
Jennifer Beals had three body doubles, one of whom was Crazy Legs, the breakdancer. And knowing that, like once you know that watching the movie, that's all you can see is Adrian Lyne like covering that up <laughs> because all this dancing scenes are really dark or like she has makeup on or it's just her legs. And then it's a cut a shot of her face like bouncing around, like really obviously not her. But it's still it's just so I don't know. I find it very enjoyable and inspiring and it's just like not like other girls point I definitely did not felt didn't feel like I fit in with other women when I was or other girls when I was a girl and like sort of being more masculine and this was sort of like yeah you can be maybe a little bit more masculine but still like not a lesbian so I don't know it sort of opened up it opened up what womanhood could be because she never you know she still like dresses like a slob welds and then she strips it's feminism there are choices even though um the one complaint of course is that you know this is just like a small philadelphia uh, steel bar and yet they are doing these totally elaborate stripping things where it's like kabuki they've got like these crazy costumes that they're coming up with it and it's like where is the budget for this where is the budget for any of this uh, but it's great it's still great well from steel it's a world made of steel oh, then, made of, of course stone. you're right you're right how can i, I mean, forget of stone you know, too yeah <laughs> have you alone cried silent tears full of pride yes all the time <laughs> you know what you're making me think of though i don't know why i'm just noticing this but in the 90s, as I was growing up, there were a lot of films about strippers that I saw. That Show I like, girls. I yeah, so I saw Showgirls before I saw Flashdance. I don't know mm. how that happened. I don't know how I saw Showgirls. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. God almighty. <laughs> like, I, there was, again, there was no, well, there, there was, was no all, filter. I, I remember there was like a cut that was on like Fox, okay. but it was like, very, like, there was very, very, very cut up, obviously. What okay. was the movie in the mid 90s where the, it was the stripper movie where, like, the the promise that both of Demi Moore's breasts would be unveiled was like a gigantic publicity oh, deal. Is that some proposal? No, no, it was strip um, tees. it was a striptease. Strip yeah, tees. the Carl Hyacin yes. one. Yes. Yeah, that that yes. this was going to be a very very big deal to to see her breasts. I remember that. I I, I don't know <laughs> which why. is a big deal for everyone in this room. Obviously. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was striptease. It was showgirls. Flashdance came up a lot, um, and then a little later, Coyote Ugly. Oh, not yeah. in the same way, but also uh, there was a black stripper movie, Players Club, that was yes. really big. Yes. Just uh, there were a lot of this was a huge thing, and I think it. I don't know why they were always on in my house. I guess because they were on HBO yeah. or Cinemax or whatever. They Skinamax. were just like Skinamax. Yeah, it was yeah. just like <laughs> the adult cable channels were showing these films mm -hmm. um, and nobody was monitoring. And little Cameron didn't know. <laughs> You're just appreciating the art. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was wild to come around like as an adult to Adam Naiman's book about showgirls <laughs> because as a kid, it was that was a movie where I was like, oh, yeah, this is clearly like a trash movie, right? Like mm -hmm. this is a the way I, I just kind of had a sense of, of of that being supposed to be lower tier. I think it's a better movie than that. But yeah, I don't know. No one was monitoring me. Maybe don't do that to your kids. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll end up a film critic. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say for myself. Before we close, it would be great if each of us could say one film that we've seen recently that we liked. I saw the new restoration of Police Story, which is a film that Jackie Chan stars in and directed. And I think I think he wrote it as well. It's just a movie that's so full of stuff from beginning to end. And all of the stunts, of course, because it's a Jackie Chan movie, are not just 
great. They're extra, extra beyond great. And of course, the this film, the first police story is very well known for there's this big fight sequence at the end where Jackie Chan slides down this pole in this mall three times. You get to see the sun three times from different angles, just drumming home the, the physicality. And then at the end, after, you know, while the credits are playing, you get to see him perform a stunt and then like the aftermath of the stunt where people are carrying him out, they're picking glass out of his back. It's just this uh, real tactile sort of type of filmmaking that contemporary films, you know, with VFX, whatever, they just feel so much more closed in. And this is just like pandemonium in every possible part of Hong Kong. And I, I love it. Love it. Well, as part of my Leslie Manville rewatch, I, I, uh, took another look at Mike Lee's Another Year from 2010, which I had not seen since then. And I don't remember what I thought of it then, but I, I was just out of college when it came out. And so I, there was a thing about that film that I was missing that definitely resonated this, which is Leslie Manville's character as the broke single friend. Mm. Um, really tough movie. <laughs> uh, if, if Like a uh, really tough movie on her, on her character um, and really affecting... Um, and her performance just really astonishes me uh, as the, you know, the 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 broke single friend who's really tight work friends with this, you know, brutally, you know, brutally just functional middle class couple, um, Jim Broadbent and, and Ruth Sheehan. Man, it's a movie that I, I just keep thinking about now because it's. In, in, in terms of the things that you miss before you've before you've had any sort of experience, um, the things that really I mean, now I'm watching that movie and it's just no way that I could have missed how singular she becomes and how lonely she becomes. The movie ends on a shot of her looking desperately sad. So recommend it if you're in the mood. Yeah. It's a good Valentine's Day pick, maybe. I don't can't, know. Can't wait to feel bad and watch <laughs> that one. <laughs> I'm. Uh... I'm working on a biography right now of Mike Nichols, and one movie that I've had occasion to watch a lot lately is Carnal Knowledge. And oh, okay. um, it I was really struck at what a perfect movie for this moment it is because, you know, at a moment when the whole idea of quote-unquote toxic masculinity is is really, you know, in the center of the currency of the conversation um, – Carl Knowledge is a fascinatingly brutal and an uncompromised movie. And one thing that really strikes me is that the it came out in 1971 and the discussion of it, which lasted for months and months because movies played for a long time then, was very much akin to the discussion we would have now. I mean, there was a big but not all men contingent, mm. you know, pre pre Twitter. But so instead of Twitter, there were op-eds in the New York Times saying, you know, all men aren't like that. And other people saying, no, this is really a, a moment, an opportunity to hear a, a privileged conversation between men about how they really talk about women. And uh, other movies said, this is the so-called left punishing the, I mean, other critics said, this is the so-called left punishing the middle class for wanting to have sex. And it's mm -hmm. trying to turn sex into this miserable thing. I mean, every every contour of an argument about the sexual politics of a movie that would be familiar to us in 2018 was present in the way carnal knowledge was received. And I think that it remains a really 
fascinating movie made with incredible conviction and also incredible economy. There are only, one of the most striking things about it is I think there are only about seven speaking parts in it. Mm. Um, it's a really lean, really focused movie and and probably a movie whose time never fully went away but has definitely come again. Yeah. You brought this up, so I sort of have to address it, that the conversation is so similar this movie that's over 40 years old, 50 years old, that we keep having the same conversations about these things and we just can't seem to quite move forward. That's so sad. It's like so sad, but it's also like I don't see what could possibly move things forward if they aren't addressed. You know? It's sad, but it also speaks well for movies because in a way, like, is that what this is really like? Yeah. Whatever the this is, but is that what this is really like is always going to be a question that a movie should explore. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's like one of the things that movies can do. One of the reasons we love them so much is that a movie can try to give us an answer to that question, whatever the specifics of that question are. Um, and, and Colonel Knowledge tries to. Yeah. When I was back in France over Christmas, I saw the latest film by Robert Guédiguian, which is called La Villa. And Robert Guédiguian is... Um, a French filmmaker who's been working kind of in his own system for at least 40 years. He is from Marseille. He has mostly made social kind of leftist films in Marseille with the same cast. He works um, with his wife, two friends that he's had since childhood. His career has been prolific, up and down. He's had popular and critical successes. He's had films that weren't that interesting. Um, and La Villa just really seems to take stock of where things are in France at the moment. It's in some ways a very typical French film in that, or a, a very typical certain kind of auteurist French film in that it deals with some mildly estranged siblings who have to deal with their dying parents' property. Mm -hmm. So they return to this creek on the Mediterranean near Marseille, this beautiful house, and have to wrestle with a lot of things. But... Guédiguian brings in the downfall of the French Communist Party, and then in a really surprising, very, very poetic and fictional way, he brings in the European migrant crisis. But, but what I really was actually moved to tears by was there's a moment about halfway through the film where out of nowhere, he cuts to a sequence from a film of his called Kilosa, which is from 1985, so more than 30 years ago, and you see these same three actors that are the characters from this film in a car. The music is a Bob Dylan song from Blonde on Blonde. I forget which one. And you see the work of time and, and all of that by contrast. But mostly what I got from it is kind of a sense of this man and his collaborators' lifelong project and the sense of a life well-lived. You know, mm -hmm. he can go back into his archive. He's not making a sequel. It's not the same characters. But it's the same people in the same place, shot on film with that same Mediterranean light. And it's just breathtaking. And, and when I saw that, I thought to myself both, this is why I love film. I've never seen this before. And only film can do this. And I just, it's magnificent. Do you know if that will come over to the U.S. in any way? No? His career has not been terribly notable in the U.S. And I... In the arenas that I know of, yeah. he is not coming, and I'd be surprised if the film was being distributed. And it's oh, okay. a real shame because the one other thing I wanted to say about it is it's very Ozu-like in its mm. attention to our elders, generations, property. It would be really a shame if this film were not seen here. Mm. All right.
Well, if the Lincoln Plaza was still open, I'm sorry, I'm just saying, but you know, <laughs> a total that's, Lincoln that's Plaza an film. Upper West Side Lincoln Plaza sounding movie. Oh yeah, and I mean that as praise. Yes, yes, we I agree. We should we should respect our elders. One of those elders being Lincoln Plaza. So, <laughs> thank you all for coming. This was um, helpful. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app.